Welcome to the Wish Day Podcast. This is another episode. Today I have Jen, and I'll let her introduce herself. Surprise, she's not Navajo and not Native, but that's okay. Hi, uh, my name is Jen Byers. Um, I am a journalist, and one time I was called a media organizer. I also do art and stuff. I met Marley uh, working on an article for The Guardian, and now I am kind of helping DPI do some editing work, and it's really fun. Thank you. Thank you for being on this episode today. I like holding this mic. Also, like, if you haven't noticed, we're using a mic, and it's actually the first time we've ever used a mic on this episode, and I feel really, really fancy. Um, I guess, you know, we've had discussions about media, and that is your background. And, you know, because this is a podcast, and it is a form of media and expression and art and human vulnerability, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, How has media failed, you know, within, I guess, this election or within this administration or just anything in general? Like, what are some issues you see currently with the media? And I guess we can, this might involve fake news. I don't know, but whatever you think. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the the failures of this current media regime are are fairly plentiful. Um, And I think... Uh, first off, if we're talking about this election or this political cycle, I think it's really central to uh, talk about the fact that the media is still talking about literally everything that the president is doing. You know, I mean, I think that the president is by and large a, a big old giant toddler. And as you know, when a toddler is having a temper tantrum, the worst thing that you can do, especially if they have consistent temper tantrums, is to drop everything and to accommodate to them. And I think that that is what the media is doing with this president. I'm not sure if it's because they're trying to get some Watergate-like scandal so they can finally impeach him. I'm not sure if it's because they genuinely don't know how to write about anything else. (laughs) I don't know if it's because they're actually interested in the movements of the president, or I don't know if it's because, you know, they're sort of, like, afraid that if you ignore the toddler, the toddler will, like, break the whole China set or something. But um, I think the fixation on Trump and Trump's micro-movements at the expense of an analysis... Um, of, I don't know, the fact that we're in a global water crisis is um, pretty frustrating. I think with the fixation with Trump is very much this fixation on the 1%, and I don't ever think that that's appropriate. So. Yeah, that's actually something I was thinking that, it, it seems to be that a lot of mainstream media focuses on Trump, and a lot of, I, I would like to give props to the smaller media mm-hmm. groups that are focusing on uh issues that aren't related to the president, but more of also things that have historically been going on, whether it be water rights, uh, indigenous rights, um, even like the current, um, uh, shit, hold on, I'm blinking really quick. Um, the prison, um, Mm -hmm. they're thinking of, there hasn't really been much coverage of it. You know, it's still focusing on other things and that seems to be an issue and that, that's the same 
at least critique I would throw out with um, Standing Rock is that mainstream media didn't cover it until it, you know, started to get bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was really focusing on the election and also Obama. And even after Obama said some things about it, or he, he didn't address it until the media addressed it. So, you know, what this seems to be related to Trump, but what are other issues that you see with the media, you know, as it relates to society and conveying information? Yeah, I mean, I think on some level, my critique of like the Trump, uh, the Trump fixation as being this issue of the 1% is actually an issue that I see kind of consistently in media. You know, if we want to talk about what it takes to be a journalist nowadays, um, frequently it takes a lot of money to be a journalist. You know, the, the field is so competitive and the wages are so low that when you're starting off as a journalist, you either have to be supported by, you know, another job that you have um, or you have to be supported by an outside entity, e.g. your parents, journalism, and I think a lot of creative professions are ex- can be exclusionary because it's expensive to like it. It costs a lot of money to start working in those fields, and that's something that's easier for some folks than it is for others. And I think that that's a really, really, really big problem. Um, I think secondly, you know, like most creative arts fields, nepotism is king. You know, who do you know? Oh, your dad knows a guy who works at Rolling Stone. So he's going to get you an interview with the Rolling Stone. And maybe not your dad, your college counselor, that dude you met at your coffee shop, you know. Um, Networking-centric positions um, and professions can be very alienating and... um, yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense, yeah. but... <laughs> no, I, I feel you. I think, too, is just one important thing is, like, this rise of, like, I don't... I guess grassroots media, um, you know, that I, I'm starting to see. At least that's... Maybe might have been there already. It's just something that I'm starting to encounter with. Uh, I think one of them was, like, Unicorn Riot is one of those. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not really that big, but they covered Standing Rock. And I'm going to just focus, you know, at least Standing Rock is my other issues, but... Um, we are currently in the Navajo Nation. There is a Navajo Times, and I do hear that you know they don't, they have, they have a lot of issues that you were talking about. It's just like trying to maintain themselves uh, on the salary they get, and they want to do hard hitting stories, but it's just the time and effort isn't isn't something they can do with their income. What do you think about these the rise of these small grassroots media organizations? I think that there, if media is salvageable, it will be because of those those institutions. You know, I think that in general, um, the commonization of massive industry is necessary if we actually want a revolution. You know, I think that which which is to say, like, you know, media needs to be by the people for the people. You know, and when I look at Anderson Cooper, who I believe is a Vanderbilt. He doesn't speak for me. He doesn't understand my life experiences. You know, as empathetic as he could be, he has never had the life experience that a lot of my friends who are working in grassroots media have. So when my friends in grassroots media organizations tell a story, they're telling it with a depth and a context that is extremely relevant to what they're reporting on. And I think a lot of grassroots media folks started doing media because they had to you know, because their water was poisoned and they wanted to understand why, because their friend was shot and they wanted to hold a police officer accountable. You know, when I see grassroots stuff, I see a lot of media out of necessity. And I think that that is so important because when you tell a story out of necessity, you're just going to tell it better. You know, when you tell a story out of passion, you're going to tell it better, I think, than if you turn, than if you tell, you know, than if you tell something because your editor told you to. You know, um, so I think that grassroots media 
should become very prominent. I think it would actually, I mean, middle size, like middle size specialized economies tend to make for happier people than, you know, large dominant triangular corporations. So I think grassroots media, assuming, you know, it can continue the push to like grow thick and grow wide and grow tall, you know, that, that is the solution for, you know, better informed, engaged people. Yeah. I, I would also like to add that like a lot of this, I, the, the way you mentioned commonizing, I think when it comes to grassroots media, you know, these small news outlets, I think they do a really good job of like kind of democratizing the news or democratizing the distribution of information uh, because there has been a growing trend. And I, I don't know the exact specific history. I just remember reading it, uh, watching, reading a document, watching a document, a uh, documentary on, you know, how the, the, there's a monopoly behind, you know, the, the news. Would you be able to expound on that just in case? I, I don't really know the background of that. So I'm like, maybe you might know. What do you mean like the monopoly of the news? Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, could, maybe you could speak to, like, your, your perception and understanding of the monopolization of the news media. I mean, I think, like, I think in general, you know, I mean, we, the cheapest shot I could take at that is Rupert Murdoch, right? Rupert Murdoch's company owns, like, CNN, Fox, and Vice, you know? I think they're all under the same umbrella, you know? And, and we see a lot, I mean, in the hyper-capitalization, whatever the hell you want to call it, we see a lot of instances like this where there's, like, a hegemon or a monopoly man who owns or has a deep hand in the pocket of multiple outlets that are supposed to be different. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of people working in the same fields. So the work tends to be homogenous. The content tends to be homogenous. The rules tend to be homogenous. The standards tend to be homogenous. And that homogeneity is like, I don't know, that pretty much kills creativity. And I fucking thought art and media was supposed to be creative. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I think if you're, if you're listening to this, the point being is that there's a monopolization of the media. And yeah, we, I, I'll fact check this to make sure that we, <laughs> I'll, I'll put a little disclaimer and I'll, I'll, I'll probably interject myself and be like, actually, and then I'll, I'll do that. But yeah. I mean, the point being, though, is that there is a monopolization of, uh, of the media. And it does cause issues because, as you mentioned, on the aesthetic side, or at least the the side that relates to how it's distributed, it gets homogenized and streamlined, and everything goes. But what about what would you? Can you talk about the political consequences of having a, a monopolization on news media? Yeah, when you have a monopoly, um, you don't get the full side to every story. You know, I think that the principles of objectivity run very deep. In a lot of in a lot of media, and I think that objectivity is like a really, really, really sick ideology because it forces the reporter to be distant from the thing that they're reporting on. And like, if you ain't got a dog in the fight, why the fuck are you talking about the fight? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think monopolization sets again homogenous standards across the board. And when we have this understanding that storytelling and reporting, um, our communication, why would we want them all to, why, why would we want the same standards to be everywhere? You know, why, why would you want all of your friends to talk the same? Why would you want all your music to sound the same? You know, why would you want 
Um, you know, I, I think a lot of folks say, say things like, well, it's great because then you know the filter, but it's like, okay, well, fuck you. That filters some white supremacist, <laughs> like, you know, old is old as time, boring ass shit that, you know, I don't believe in a massive corporation. I don't believe that any one individual should be con in control of like $15 billion. I don't believe that wealth should be concentrated. So if these organizations, these homogenous monopolized organizations come out of this belief that one individual or one hegemon should be able to manage, decide, control, engage with all, with all of that, then, then we're already getting our news from people who fundamentally disagree with us. So why should we trust them? I don't know. I, I, why should we trust them, you know? <laughs> yeah, for me, it's always been like a, an issue of more of the political consequences. I mean, I just assume people would have their own ways, but there is a, there is a, um, a fear of standardization when it comes to information distribution you know, everybody's starting to say things. I think there was, like, this thing on Facebook where it was, like, someone, like, edited all of these, like, news reporting things, and everybody was like, oh, my God, it's it's 1984. George Orwellian was right. And I was like, well, it is true, but, I mean, those are just, like, the main, or at least how, like, the dominant um, news channels and, not news channels, uh, news media sources, organizations are kind of controlling the local ones now. And, you know, I, I, I one of the, I mean, one of the favorite things I like to watch on YouTube when I have the time is John Oliver. And he did a, he did a really interesting, um, I don't know, what do they call it? when they, An episode on local journalism and the fact that a lot of his data and a lot of the, the information he gets is actually from local media and how that they're actually dying out because of these large corporations and that they do have their own creative tendencies and they, they have their own uh, perceptions and they are able to do something that a lot of these mainstream media corporations can't do is that, you know, and, that, and again, like I said, to me, it's also, if we're thinking of like spatial, it's more of a decentralization of information. Um, but yeah, hold on. Anyways. <laughs> so, uh, I guess the next question then is, you know, and we talked about this a little bit when it comes to, you know, commonizing the, the media, but what do you think should happen? What, what do you think can be improved you know, what, what was the, what, what, what's the end goal that you'd like to, or let me, before we go to end goal, how would you like to improve it? What are ways you'd like to improve upon it? Oh God, right. That's a big old question. It's a big old podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I mean, I think the first thing that can happen is, you know, definitely the diversification of hiring practices. You know, you look at the statistics for how many folks are in newsrooms and, you know, where they're from and what nationality they are and all these different stuff. And it's bleak. It's something like, it's, it's I think it's, again, interject a fact check for this, but it's something like 0.3% of journalists in newsrooms are native. It's like, um, it's a very, you know, cis white dude, dominant, freaking um, industry. You know, I went in for, I went into a camera store the other day, about a year ago, and I was trying to get some gear um, and I do, I guess I've done some conflict photography. I've done, you know, stand in front of the police photography, you know, make sure nobody gets hurt <laughs> photography. And, um, I do a lot of kind of like, I'm in the middle of nowhere photography. And I was talking to the guys there and I was like, well, what's the statistics on, you know, the gender breakdown of this? And they go, well, you know, wedding photography is pretty female dominant, but for the stuff that you do, I would say that 96 to 98% of the people that come into the store are men, you know? And 
I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just like a bad statistic. Like that's, that's just shitty, you know? And I always find, you know, I'm five foot three, um, and fairly petite and people are always shocked when I tell them what I do, but, um, that shouldn't be the case. You know, that, that, that shouldn't be the case because, you know, I'm small, so I can sneak around really good. <laughs> you know, I'm lithe, so I can climb up a tree and get a really good vantage point. And I think that, you know, when people look at my photos, they do tend to, to, to like them. And it's because they're taken from an angle that they haven't seen before, you know? And I think that that, you know, you, you bring in new perspectives into the newsroom and you bring in li like new perspectives. You literally bring in new, new perspectives and you bring in new stories and you, you, you bring in literally new ways of seeing the world. Like when I used to teach photography, I would always tell my students, you know, when we look at the world, we do not like your eye isn't the shit that sees. It's your brain that interprets the light in your eye. So you think that you have very different, you know, you have different experiences from the girl next to you. You have different experiences from the, the guy next to you, you know, like that means that you are literally seeing something different. And given that news is visual, you know, there's been a huge rise in video journalism. Um, we need literal different perspectives in newsrooms. We need literal different perspectives making content because we're all seeing the world differently and that's critical to talk about. Critical, <coughs> I think. Yeah, all right. we st every time you give me the thing, I always say, yeah, I need to work <laughs> on that. Anyways, um, so, the, the, that I was gonna say we should just abolish and take over corporations, but that's yours is down for that too. Don't get, I mean like my more radical answer is like get the guillotine out, distribute <laughs> that money to the grassroots orgs who need it. But like I don't know if that'll get me arrested. <laughs> I hope not, because I'd be a com a, an accomplice on that. But um, anyways, so you you bring up a point of the visual. Uh, side of the news, which I, you know, we don't really think about it, but now that with the, I guess since media has always existed, there's always been some photo right next to it, mm -hmm. as well as the way we read our stories and whatnot. There's always, you know, when we're growing up, we have these, these bedtime stories and they come with images. Um, with the creation of social media, do you think that will help local grassroots, you know, uh, media organizations? Or there's also this fear that, you know, Facebook might start censoring things. What do you, what's your take on that? Or well, you can just do the part one and then work on part two afterwards, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's already helped, you know? I, I definitely think that, I mean, I said the commonization, not the democratization of media, just because I, f I fucking hate democracy, um, because I hate the ancient Greek demos that comes from, you know, casual mob rule of, like, wealthy landowners who have time to vote. So uh, that's just personal preference. So when I say commonization, it's kind of similar to democratization, but I just, I got beef with that. Um, <laughs> I definitely think we've already seen um, grassroots media um, shift the conversation because the content and the quality does push, I mean, especially younger organizations to, um, to create better content. I mean, you also see a lot of grassroots videographers, photographers, writers get, you know, scouted by these, these, these organizations. So it's like this weird sell your soul thing where you're like, well, you know, You'd actually be surprised how much creative freedom you can get in a situation when you're working kind of as like an underling for a big corporate news organization. Um, 
so we're already seeing kind of like the move of like some journalists getting their work kind of absorbed into and like getting and, and having their work influence the work. You know, the thing that you're not seeing enough of is older journalists using social media as a way to learn. I think that older journalists are very comfortable making stories about he tweeted, she tweeted, they Instagrammed, but um, they don't necessarily use these outlets as a way to listen. Um, you know, follow your five favorite grassroots organizations and follow their lead. You know, I think that a lot of major news corporations could like benefit from following grassroots media as opposed to just digesting or as opposed to just being inspired by or as opposed to just like poaching them I don't know if that makes any sense sorry you gave me like two big questions <laughs> yeah this this podcast is all about big questions in a little matter of time um <clears throat> yeah no I, I think because the way I imagined it is you have like I, I remember reading articles about how people saw the internet as a way of I guess we'll use your term uh, commonizing information and allowing things to go through and instantly almost. Uh, and so what they're noticing now is that the, with, I believe, fuck, I can't remember the, the, the legislation where the keep the neutrality act. Mm, neutrality, yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, so like the, the neutrality act and how corporation and how profits are going to start determining whether or not, you know, who, who gets what type of information and, or at least it could lead to that. Um, it, it starts to be con controlled and regulated uh, by by corporations. And so a lot of fears, at least from what I've seen, and also what I imagine would be is that Facebook and Twitter, all of these social accounts, even like Snapchat, they'll start to be weeded out. Mm -hmm. Or they're going to be censored. Or I guess weeded out. Yeah, speak yeah, to that. They already are. I mean, like Instagram has like a really high rate of like – this like uh what is it not blocking but like when you cancel or delete and the account of like radical women of color like it's pretty con like those blogs get shut down a lot faster than like white supremacist blogs you know you'll see that on twitter a lot of the time where you know someone will you know a, the, a radical and a conservative get another fight a radical gets blocked a conservative doesn't mm. you you're, we're already seeing that you know and i think a thing that i think that gets that that does get people down a lot but one thing I would like to interject into that conversation is like the revolution has always lived underground. Like that's the point. The revolution has always lived in creativity, you know? And if you're doing, if you're doing media, if you're, if you're doing organizing and you're not being creative with your tactics, like what boat are you on? Like wh why, why would you expect Twitter to serve you? Why would you expect Facebook to serve you? Like these, these access points are not, are not there to serve you. They're capable of, they're things that are capable of amplifying your voices when used correctly. So, oh no, I would say like, expect being censored, expect being targeted, expect, you know, your account to get deleted um, and use those expectations as a way to galvanize you to be more creative in how you use your skills, your talents um, and how you get your message across. That was a good answer. <clears throat> Sorry. I'm like, I, I, if, I don't know if they can hear me, but I'm also like drinking as well. Not, I'm drinking tea. <laughs> I just want to emphasize I'm drinking tea while she's talking. And we're using a microphone, so I don't have to worry about like it hearing me, but it's just like, because you're speaking right into a mic. Um, so I guess we, we kind of covered a lot of the media and it's, it's kind of like the first half of this episode. I think it's time for us to get real personal. Oh, 
the reason, and I'll, I'll, I'll get personal first. The reason why I started focusing on the media is I, I honestly did not grow up re- watching the news. I did, but it was always like passive, like, oh, the, it would be on and I'd watch it, but I wouldn't absorb it. I wouldn't absorb it and I wouldn't think about it critically. Yeah. And that's just, you know, and so it wasn't until like maybe in college, a little bit towards the end of high school that I was like, oh shit, I should probably listen to this uh, because this affects my community as well as the place I live, as well as globally. There's just a lot of information and I need to pay attention to it. And so I started doing that as well as social media and social media making it easier to have information distributed and, you know, sharing and liking and commenting. Uh, and, and then eventually it was, it was, it wasn't like, I always knew the power of media, but it wasn't until I saw that movie. Um, fuck. It's with the, the priest, the Catholic priest in oh, Boston. Yeah, Boston spotlight. Yeah, that one. Spotlight. It wasn't until I watched spotlight that I was like, Wow. I really appreciate the media and I really appreciate the fact that the work that these reporters will put into kind of just bringing the truth Mm -hmm. and how difficult it is, as well as the way I really like that movie because it talks about, you know, when they're like, we should just release it now. It's like, well, we're only going to nail one person. You know, we really need to show that this is a systemic thing. Mm -hmm. And that was the one thing that I always like, I'm like, man, that's such a good point. Like, you know, when you're when you have the power to distribute news and you, you, you take it upon yourself to do that, you have to be very careful when you release it, how you release it. And it really made me appreciate the media. Um, and so now, like, you know, with me, I'm like, man, I wouldn't mind trying to be a reporter, but I also know it's not easy at all. I, I'll try to. Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. So I, I'll definitely try to do it. <laughs> Um, what, what inspired you to kind of, you know, pushed you in this direction to kind of focus on media? Yeah. Um, good question. Um, I have, I don't know, my biggest skills just consistently, although I've tried to avoid them, have always been writing, communication, listening, learning, synthesizing information and research, you know, and I've tried to learn other shit. Um, and those are just what, that's just what I can do, you know, and I, it annoys me, (laughs) but it's like, that's just what I can do, and I was in academia, and I always wanted to be a professor, but I kind of quickly learned the pitfalls of the academy, you know, um, the white supremacist patriarchy really got to me, and after I got my BA, I dropped, I, like, dropped out of academia, um, and I went to go work in the film industry, and then I spent enough time in the film industry, you know, learning about, uh, cameras, storytelling, all that stuff, and um, picked up a lot of the tools of the trade, but sort of found my sort of more activist side to be lacking. You know, after kind of working a really abusive job for Netflix, haha, <laughs> Netflix was nice, but my production coordinator was a dick. Um, like he would just like yell at me in front of the whole office because he was having a bad day with his family. You know, regular, regular verbal abuse um, in that industry. And, you know, we're seeing the Harvey Weinstein shit, so you can imagine how many producers touched my lower back and asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. That was a very common, very common. I was so annoyed. I'm here to make art, not to be exploited. Thanks. Um, So I kind of worked worked a bunch of jobs, saved up money, and I was like, fuck this. I'm going to buy a camera and figure out how to do it on my own. So I kind of confined my academia with my camera stuff and got really galvanized by um, the deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling that one week um, to, you know, really begin learning about police brutality, you know, intervening or, you know, documenting whenever I seen kind of police um, do some shady shit. 
And that sort of line of investigation brought me up to Standing Rock, um, which was uh, a bit happenstancey, but I arrived on Water Cannon Night, and that was my intro to kind of like, re like organized police violence. Um, the next night, I met someone from uh, Cheyenne River Reservation who kind of took me under his wing. He was like, you're in media, then you need to talk about this. You need to report about this. And I'm going to tell you, um, he just really generously gave me a really big backstory about um, kind of just like the fact that the Indian Wars never ended. Um, and so I got a, like a volunteer position with the media tent up there to kind of try to learn like, you know, how to respectfully report indigenous communities. And, and I kept coming across um, people being really upset with the actions of journalists, you know, the actions, the assumptions, um, the, the lack of respect of journalists. And so I kind of was like, okay, fuck it, I'll help. Fuck it, I'll get this story out. You know, I was, I left Standing Rock for a bit and I left the country. Um, and when I returned to America, that friend who had taken me under his wing had called me about 30 times, left me about 15 different voicemails, begging me to come back. He's like, the situation's really fucking dire. We need you. Get your ass back here. Where the fuck are you? So I came back um, to document kind of the raid, the cleanup, um, and then just kind of kept going from that. Afterwards, was asked to do a couple photo stories and then just kept learning. And I just kind of like, I guess, developed a reputation as like that bitch with the camera. <laughs> so um, yeah, just, just tried to continue to help. And I don't know, here I am. <laughs> Thank you. Now I know how to do it. I'm just going to copy that. No, I'm joking. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Kate Chung. Are there any other inspirations that you have that may not be media related but who are or who or what have been inspirations to you when it comes to like kind of what who or what has galvanized you to really kind of be the the, the person who distributes the truth yeah. um i would say my friends you know mostly everything that i do is because i i, I want to protect um or i want to amplify the voice of a friend you know like i said um you know, I just care about my friends. And um, I think, you know, as white people, we're always told to use your privilege for the best. And so I, I think it's this kind of like, I, I do feel, I, I, in many ways, I feel like a true media person, media, you know, coming from like the middle layer, <laughs> being in the middle of things. You know, I feel like I have this ability to, you know, under, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel like I have the ability to, to, to say stuff to mean white people in a way that they will get it. And I feel that because I can do that, I have to do that. But I mean, realistically, it's like, I want my friends to have clean water. <laughs> like, I don't want my friends to like have to suffer because of some stupid ass zoning law that they didn't get to contribute to, but that affects their lives. You know, I don't, I don't want um, the world to be like this. And it's all personal, which is like, yeah, I don't know, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I was going to, I'm going to try to top your embarrassment. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> uh, when I was younger, I used to watch the TV and be like, I wish I was one of them. No, um, I've always been hella introvert. Well, at the beginning of my life, I was very introverted. And now I have a podcast, which is like, I guess introverted people can have podcasts too, I guess. Um, but now I'm very extroverted and I, I do dabble with the idea of 
go becoming a news reporter or uh, an on the ground reporter. I don't think I ever want to sit in front of a camera and be like, "Welcome to." I mean, technically, I know I'm like, "Welcome to the Wish Day Podcast," <laughs> um, but like I said, it's just something that I, I like. Similar to what you said, is that the reason why I'm doing this podcast is kind of on a very like intimate issue or intimate level of I like talking to people that will provide good insight into things. And for the most part, they're friends of mine. I'm not really the type of dude to bring on someone who, someone on the, onto the podcast that I disagree with. Cause I'm like, why do I want to give them a platform? <laughs> That's just, I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. Like I'm never going to bring like a Navajo white supremacist on this and be like, or they, I'm not, they do exist. They just might not know they're white supremacists. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll never bring them on to the podcast because I'm like, I don't want them to have a platform. Like, yeah. you know, and I guess that's probably why I might not be the most democratic person. It's like, well, why don't you give them a platform? It's like, they don't deserve one. It's hate. So, you know, with the, this podcast, it's like interviewing people who are my friends who have ideas that I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I think that'd be a really cool discussion. We should totally talk about that. You know? And so I, I definitely come from the the same vein, it's just like, and, and it goes into more of a political thing, which is like, hey, you know, we live in this world. Whatever happens to you happens to me, for the most part, assuming you're not the 1%. Um, and we should be having these discussions and we should be understanding them together. You know, that this whole life is just one large learning process that we all go through together. And and so I was like, you know what, fuck it, start a podcast. Um and so that that's kind of like I said, this plus whatever I, you know, the work that I do, and, and the fact that I'm pretty approachable, and I'm like, I, I think I can write, you know, is it's it's pushing me towards reporting, or at least kind of like a, a more, yeah, I guess reporting. That brings me to the final question: mm-hmm. What advice do you have for any individual that wants to be a reporter? Learn how to listen good. Listening is the biggest skill that you can have, I think, in this profession or in this in just life in general. Um, learn how to listen, learn how to observe, um, learn how to be obtrusive when you want to be and learn how to be unobtrusive when you want to be. Um, yeah, I think learning, you know, self-discipline and learning consideration and, and really honing your empathy are really, 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 really important. And I mean, I like not to say that I'm like good at all those things, but that I strive to be. And, you know, when, I don't know, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, empathy is the biggest skill that you can have, you know, because if you can master empathy, you'll probably, not, ma- no one can fucking master empathy. If you can get pretty good at empathy, your writing's going to be better, you know, your pictures are going to be better, your video is going to be better, and your ability to maneuver in crowds and communities is going to be better, you know, and I think that also I would just say, you know, fuck objectivity, and fuck the belief that you have to be distanced from your work because, I mean, I know just just to repeat that, you know, I think that the work should be personal um, because I think the people who are living it deserve to have, you know, to deserve to tell their own stories. And I think that also with listening that connects because it's like, you know, as a journalist or as a person in the media, you know, decenter yourself from being like, I am the person coming into this community to, you know, give these people a voice. Like, these people already fucking have a voice. These people have had a voice. These people have never been without a voice. What these people have been without is a fucking platform or, or, or you know, an, an, a, an, like access or, or an avenue to, to the TV, you know? 
like these, sorry, I shouldn't say fucking these people. I hate that. I hate that. I hate my own rhetoric. And don't be okay with self-correcting because especially if you are given any kind of platform, especially if you are given any opportunity to write, you're going to fuck up and you're going to say some stupid shit. So get your butt humble ASAP because you're infallible, because you're fallible. We're all fallible. And the quicker that you learn that you're fallible, the better I think your work will be because, <coughs> you know, I don't know, like you're going to fuck up. <laughs> like we're, we all fuck up and, and bounce back from that and just, just be passionate and just care and, and have a grounded understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, because, you know, some people don't, and that's, that's why bad stories happen. <laughs> I like how through all of this advice, you kind of redefined like how to be a reporter is just being a good human being, you know? And I think that's the thing too, is that there's behind being, everybody has this idea. I would say a lot of people have this idea that being a reporter is very, is a very technical job. But if you like kind of get to the nitty gritty, it's like, nah, just listening, knowing when to, you know, knowing when to speak and knowing when to listen, uh, as well as just being humble and, and taking criticism. I really like that one that you said about knowing when to be intrusive, you know, or obstructive. Wait, was it obstructive or intrusive? Both. Either both are good to know, intrusive and obstructive. You know, intrude when something bad's going on, obstruct when something's bad bad's going on. If you can get between the police and a vulnerable person with your camera, like know how to do that. I think a lot of, I think a lot of people when they get into journalism, the idea is to tell the truth. And if you see someone, but I think that's what they. Everybody goes into that profession or into that position thinking that. But then, like, there's this neutrality idea that's like, no, you have to let them speak. And it's like, no, if you know something's wrong, you should correct that shit right then there. You should do it in a respectful way unless they're being assholes. And you'd be like, nah, fuck you, that's wrong. And, and like, this idea of civility, like, you know, that when you're... when you, I, I, I really don't have civility when it comes to white supremacists. I'm just like, nah, I'm good, peace out. Or, you know, so, like... I think that's the one thing too is like knowing when to just be like, nah, that's that's not correct, and I'm gonna tell you why it's not correct, even though you think I'm interrupting you, but I need to interrupt you, yeah. that kind of thing. I think also like finding a way. This is like so. My daddy sides from the south. My grandma would always say she's like, you gotta you gotta roll with a with an iron fist and a velvet glove, you know. And I think everyone has their own sort of like communication style, but for me, it's been very helpful. You know, like I said, to interview people who I know are doing bad things, you know, whether that be land leasing, whether that be supporting police brutality, whether that be, you know, uh, denying or cutting services that are needed, you know, I think that it really does behoove people to, to find a way that is, and this isn't like, I don't think this is like civility politics, but I think it's like, you're going to be doing an interview in an office. You know, you're going to be doing an interview on a, in a person's turf. You're going to be doing an interview with someone who has the power to hurt you a lot. <laughs> you know, I think it does behoove you to find a way of communication that feels safe to you and that does not jeopardize you. Because while there are definitely times when it is important and necessary to put your body on the line to protect a person, I think there's also a time for you to use every wit and every clever bone you have in your body to change the mind of a person, whether that be just to show them a little bit of light, to give them information that they don't know about, to advocate for a cause that they haven't considered, and finding the way that you best communicate to people that you don't like 
I think is really important too, you know, because I wish I could just guillotine everyone, but. uh. (laughs) The sigh at the end was, uh. but no, I I agree. I I, I would like to redact or, or retract, not necessarily retract, but you know, there are times when there are just like respectability politics goes out the window, but there are times if it is your, Income, your, your that's your you know your sole salary position. You should definitely figure out wittier witty, ways of you know staying in control, as well as kind of pointing out their flaws. You know, and I guess it goes back to this debate I had with somebody about Trevor Noah bringing on like Sammy. I forgot her name, but you know, a lot of people were like, "Why do you even bring her on?" Like, and to to in a sense, I was like, "Ah, uh, you know, I I agree that some people there are some people that like you can bring on and make fun of, and then it's just like you don't want to bring on like David Duke, you know." It's just like, nah, you know, so I guess it just depends on, on particular choices or who you're interviewing, how you should go about it. And you should definitely be very careful and how you navigate those moments that you either protect someone else or you protect yourself. Um, but again, like I said, that's probably up to that person who's working in that thing to, to learn from themselves, to learn for themselves, but also learn from others. Um, yeah, this is really good. This went by pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty fucking good, good conversation. I'll be honest. Like we were, we, we were going to talk about media theory, and we we're like, uh, but I was like, we're I don't know anything about media theory. So you want to like, just really quickly say something about media theory, so we can you know be like, we talked about media theory. I don't really know. I mean, what is there to say about media theory? Um, I I don't know. I. I, I I kind of didn't really study it in school. I just sort of made it up as I went along. <laughs> and I just kind of tried to learn from people. Um, and I think that's also one thing, honestly. You don't got to go to school for journalism. You don't got to get your master's in journalism. You just got to start writing and start documenting. Say, I have a friend, he works at the BBC. I don't know if he dropped out of high school because to, to go intern at a newsroom or if he finished high school and immediately started working as a newsroom as like a little page boy mailroom guy. But it is a trade. It is a trade and you don't need to go to school for it. You just need to do it. And anyone who tells you that like, you ain't gonna go, go to Columbia, so we ain't gonna hire you. Like they don't know how to do what they're trying to do anyway. You know, like it, storytelling is something that can and should come from you and your experiences. And that's how you're gonna develop your perspective. You're not gonna get it just cause you have a degree or just cause you don't have a degree. You know, there are great writers with degrees. There are terrible writers with degrees, you know, but the one thing that all the great writers and all the great you know photographers have in common is that they have a strong perspective and they have strong dedication so you can do that from your backyard you know practice <laughs> practice 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 right photograph practice, practice. <laughs> damn jen just dropping bombs left and right i mean not that you proved dropping bombs but like knowledge bombs i should say love bombs full of flowers and and cotton candy and shit like that but thank you I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this you know and you know it was a really good fucking discussion you know it's like it's like hey won't be a reporter just fucking do it do that shit learn from that shit but I'm gonna end it right here thank you for listening I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast um I always never know how to end it so I'm just gonna end it right now boom